Well, uh, it is good to be together. Thank you for taking the time to uh, be here and gather with the saints, praying that the Lord will speak to each of our hearts this morning. As a matter of fact, we're going to go before the Lord in prayer. Today we're going to begin our study uh, in Acts chapter 11. So uh, in a moment you can begin turning there. Let's pray. Father, we do want to meet with you. We want to give you the praise that you're uh, deserving of. Lord, even as we sang that last song, just... Uh, from our soul, acknowledging your greatness, Lord, uh, we are reminded, Lord, that is what we were created to do. And Father, uh, something resonates within us when we do that. And uh, so, Lord, even as we sit, Lord, to hear from you, Lord, I pray that our, the attitude and the posture of our hearts would be one of worship. Lord, even as uh, sitting, we are acknowledging that you are truth that your word is true, that speaks into the deep places of who we are and refines us, Lord, which is certainly what every one of us here needs. And so bless your word today. Minister to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in, as I said, chapter 11, and we, we began the chapter uh, the last time we were together and that chapter, you may recall, it was entitled uh, Unnamed Missionaries. It was about a group of men. It just said some men. We don't know anything about that group of men. We know where they were from. They were from Cyprus and they were from Cyrene. And God had laid it on their hearts to go to the city of Antioch. Antioch, you may recall, I mentioned, was kind of like the third leading city of that day. Rome, certainly there, Alexandria there. And then there's this city of Antioch. We don't know as much about it. It's historically in the sense that a lot of us just in a cursory level we know about Alexandria we know about Rome and things like that but Antioch was right up there it was a merchant city it was the place to be a cosmopolitan type of city where people would go they were learned they were wealthy a lot of extra money uh, to spend on frivolous things you might say uh, and all of those things and it was a it was a worldly city too and all that came with it in that regard as well. And here are these Gentiles, uh, or excuse me, these Jews of Greek descent that said we need to go and minister to those Gentiles there. And it was the first real missionary activity specifically to unbelieving Gentile people. And these guys were motivated. And we saw in Acts chapter eleven twenty one. you can glance over there, it says, and the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and they turned to the Lord. What a sweet verse that is. Because it, it reminds us, it speaks to us, that no one is too far from the grace of God. That the message of the gospel is salvation to all that will believe. And no wonder Paul was not ashamed of it, and these men of Cyprus were not ashamed of it, and none of us need to be ashamed of it. We can go to a people that, on the outside we might look, and we say they're never going to be interested in this. But God has a way of just changing hearts. He changed mine. I know a lot of you guys and your stories. He changed your hearts and brought you to himself when you weren't even looking for him. And he did that to these people here in Antioch. And soon as we learned, word filtered back to Jerusalem that something was going on up there in Antioch. The Gentiles are coming to the faith. They decided they would send Barnabas. We don't know exactly why. 
Were they like concerned, Barnabas, go check it out, we don't know what's going on up there? Or were they excited, Barnabas, go check it out, we don't know what's going on up there? One way or the other, they send Barnabas up there and Barnabas sees the grace of God. He sees lives are being transformed. He sees the way that people are loving one another as Christ works in them. He sees all these good things. He discerns, this is the grace of God. These people are saved, just as we down in Jerusalem got saved when the word went forth. And he begins, as we saw in verse 23, chapter 11, 23, he begins to exhort them, encourage them with a little bit of teaching associated with it. Remain faithful. This isn't just about two weeks of being fired up or two months of it or two years of it. It's about remaining faithful, running your race well till you come to the end of your days. And how do you do that? And that's what Barnabas spent his time considering and teaching after a while, he realized, you know, I really need another to come alongside of me here. I need someone to really be able to teach these guys well, to be able to speak sort of the language of the Hellenists that are in this town. And he remembers Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a guy we might say has been put on the bench for 10 years, had to be rushed out of the city of Jerusalem where they wanted to kill him, sent to this place of Tarsus. We don't hear anything about him doing great effective ministry at one point, and all of a sudden, what happened, Lord? Why am I here building tents, making tents for other people? I want to be serving you with all I got. And there's a knock on the door, on the canvas of the tent, I guess, and it's his old buddy Barnabas. Remember, that's not his real name. His real name was Joseph. There's too many Josephs in the Bible, I guess. But they said, we're going to call you Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Man, you're the best. We just love you. You come in, man, when you brighten my day and the words you speak and just your encouragement and even my dumb stories, you listen to them as if they're the greatest story ever. That's what he would have done with me. Just the son of encouragement. And he comes to Paul. And remember, it said he had to search for Paul or Saul. He had to hunt him up. And then it says that he had to bring or he brought Saul with him. And I, I shared the analogy of my Catholic school nuns that would grab my ear and drag me through the hall down to the principal's office. That's what technically Barnabas did with Saul. He had to force Saul to come. Come with me. They need you there. No, not me. I'm, you know, I'm out of the No, you're not. There's many more days left, Paul. You need to come. You need to teach these people. And so Saul does. And they go, he goes down there and he teaches them. Uh, and the Lord speaks about the great blessing that is poured out uh, on that church there in Antioch. Now, there's one final account in Acts chapter 11 before we move on to our chapter 12 today. And it says this. It's going to start in verse 27. So here we go. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which... Luke adds, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we're introduced to this man, Agabus. Agabus, it is said, he is a prophet. He's a prophet in, in sort of the, uh, the ilk of the Old Testament prophets, your Jeremiah's, your Isaiah's, your Daniel's, those that God would give a vision. They would speak that. This is a word of the Lord, this vision that I have received. And in it, he tells them of this coming famine. Now we're going to see Agabus again. He appears again in other parts uh, of the book of Acts. 
But here in this instance, he speaks of this great famine that is going to come over the world. Luke points out to us that it came over the world during the days of Claudius. Claudius ruled the Roman Empire. He was the Caesar of the Roman Empire from uh, 41 AD to 54 AD. These words were probably spoken 38, 39, the year 40 AD. So shortly this famine was going to come. And he reveals that, he being Agabus, he reveals that. And notice the response of this young congregation. These are new believers, less than a year in the faith. It says they take up a collection, or in so many words, they decide to send relief uh, to their brothers that are living in Jerusalem, specifically. So the disciples determine everyone according to his ability to send relief, notice, to the brothers that were living in Judea. New believers, new Christians of this little, this big town of Antioch, the city of Antioch, they take the word of this man Agabus seriously and they generously prepare to meet the coming need of their brothers in Judea. Now there's a few things that I notice here before we move on to chapter 12. Number one is this. You remember earlier, maybe, if you were with us for that and you recall, when we learned earlier in our study of the book of Acts how generous the believers in Judea were with their resources. You remember it says that as great numbers were added to the church and the people were sticking around Jerusalem and they were being taught and they were learning, it said that they had all things in common. This is Acts chapter 2. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold their property. They sold their possessions. And they gave to anyone who had need. So back in Acts chapter 2, when the believers there in Judea had extra, they very willingly shared that extra with others. Now, they are, going, they are about to be the ones that are in need. Notice what the Lord does. The Lord lays it on the heart of others to share with them. And the point that I see here is many times we are hesitant to share of our resources, of our time, whatever it might be, but in particular financial resources, even extra that we may have. Many times we are hesitant to share that for fear that we need to store it up for a rainy day. And what we see here is the Lord knows how to meet the needs of his people. And so the first very quick lesson that we can learn from this brief account is that we can let go of the purse strings a bit in our lives. And we can place our trust in the hands of the Lord, not in the size of our bank accounts. And so the people in Judea, they had placed their hearts, their hands, their themselves into the hands of the Lord, entrusted themselves to him. And now when it's their turn to need, or have a need, the Lord moves on the heart of others to provide for that need. And so the first thing, the second thing that we learn, we take notice of, is that it is the disciples of Antioch themselves that are determined to give according to their ability to meet the needs of those that are down in Judea. So notice verse 29, it says, so the disciples determined. Catch that. Agabus doesn't force them to take up a collection to give. Barnabas and Saul, kind of their pastors, does, doesn't force them or don't force them to give to the needs of the people in Judea. But rather, as we see in that verse, each of the disciples are determined for themselves 
that they're going to give. Even, even the church itself didn't force one another. Well, we're giving, are you? And we're going to put a nice thing up on the wall there to say who's giving. If you want to be on top of the list, you need to give the most or whatever. None of that junk, that foolishness. Here's the need. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. And if he lays it on your heart, well, then be obedient. And that's what they do. I just think it's fabulous. I just really like it. You're not that impressed. That's okay. All right, but that's the second thing we learn. Nobody's forcing them. Rather, let the Holy Spirit direct them. Now, there is, that word there, determined, is an interesting word. It, it, it's a word which has, to, which has to do with calculate. And so it means to carefully think through something or to calculate something. And so what it does is it gives this idea that the people heard the need and then they went and they thought about it and they considered it and they determined, they calculated. I imagine a, a couple coming home, sitting around the table and having lunch after church and thinking, how about that? This thing that's about to happen and this particular need that is there you know, I, I was thinking the whole ride home, even as you were talking, I wasn't really listening, honey, I'm sorry, but I was thinking the whole ride home, we should help meet that need. I was thinking the same thing. I love you. You're such a spiritual man, you know, or whatever, and, and all that comes from that. And so they, they sit down and you think, well, what do you think we should give to this? And they calculate, they determine. What I appreciate about that is many times a giving push, it begins this way. For a cup of coffee a day, you could feed a child. You know, or so, oh, the child. I feel so bad. Don't you love children? Yeah, I love children. Yeah, and it starts and it's pulling on your strings and it's emotional. You know, there are churches that have revivals and the pastor or the person speaking will give sort of this invitation or whatever. And now we're going to raise money. And we prefer cash. And there are ATM machines. Literally, this is true. There are ATM machines set up in the back. Why don't you make your way back there now and give? Don't wait on this, because if you wait, and all this, and it's, what, what gimmick are we, is this from? You don't have to do all that stuff. You trust the Lord, and if he's the one guiding in a particular area, he's going to provide in that particular area. He was guiding the hearts of these believers, and he provided for those believers down in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so we move on. Third thing that I notice is this. These believers of Antioch notice they send the gift via the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, Agabus came there. From, he revealed to them what's going to go down in Jerusalem. Agabus could have said, and so tell you what, I'm going to be heading back down there. Just take up a collection. I'm no pressure or anything like that. And give it to me, and I'll bring it down there. Now, maybe it's just me. Who's this Agabus fella that we're going to give all this money to do? Like, I, he seems like a nice fella. But they, they give the money to Barnabas and Saul. They don't know Agabus. They know Barnabas and Saul. There's a level of wisdom. There's a level, level of accountability with these particular funds. They give it to a fella that they know, or two fellas, Barnabas and Saul. Next, notice what Barnabas and Saul do. This is in verse 30. And so they gave it to those guys, and then they send it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And what that means is Barnabas and Saul traveled down to Jerusalem and then they took this gift from the church in Antioch and presented it to the elders in Jerusalem who would distribute it amongst the people. And so the elders in Jerusalem, they were the ones that knew the people of Jerusalem, the church that was there 
in Jerusalem, the eventual recipients of these funds, they were the ones that knew them. And they were the ones who could discern what were legitimate needs and what were perhaps those that were taking advantage or preparing to take advantage of the system. And so Barnabas and Saul, they entrust these funds to these elders, knowing that they know the people where the funds are going to go the best. And then finally, it says in verse 29, they determine everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Remember, the people that were up in Antioch, they were Gentiles. The people that were down in Judea, or specifically down in Jerusalem, they were Jews. So these Gentiles were financially helping these Jews. Gentile believers helping Jewish believers. And they were doing so specifically, as it says, because they were their brothers and their sisters in the faith. Now, that may not be that significant, as I've been saying, as we've been looking at the Gentiles, that may not be that significant to us. Okay, whatever. But to them, it was very significant. Because as we've been saying, there was a great wall of division between Gentiles and Jews, but God was breaking that down. By his grace, he's tearing it down brick by brick by brick. And we've been seeing that each of these last few chapters that we are looking at. So here, God moves in the heart of these Gentiles so that when they hear the difficult time that is about to come upon these, the people of Judea, they gladly take of their resources and they meet the need, notice, of their brothers, their brothers in the faith. It was unthinkable to them that one part of the church should be in trouble and that another part of the church should do nothing about it because God is knitting their hearts together. He's uniting them with their brethren. It's a sweet working of God's Holy Spirit, and it's what we pray that God would be doing in us, that we wouldn't be a bunch of distinct people from all you know, different walks of life or whatever it may be, but that God would be uniting our hearts together as a body of believers, and not just with this church, but with the capital C church around the world. Amen? All right, now chapter 12. Let's go on to that. Chapter 12 is pretty much the final chapter that is focused on the ministry of Peter. You recall that I, I pointed out to you sort of the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, not every word on the page, but primarily focus on Peter, and the final you know, 16 or so chapters of the book of Acts primarily focus on the ministry of the apostle Paul. And so this is pretty much the end of focusing in on Peter. He pops up again in Acts, but this is pretty much the end of focusing on him. He fades sort of into the background, and we don't have, all, certainly not biblical information as to what he was doing during the next 20-so years of his life before he uh, was martyred for the faith. Interesting, it also marks sort of the end of the primary focus being the church in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see, the primary, the hub of Christianity is going to be in the city of Antioch. How interesting. This really bad place, immoral, all, you know, everything that comes with it. And God just sends in some unnamed missionaries. Large numbers of people begin to come to the faith. And now this becomes the hub of the Christian church. All of the missionary uh, activities that we read, you know, Paul's missionary journey here and this one there, they start in Antioch and they return in Antioch. This becomes sort of the hub here. 
how cool of the Lord, I think, that he would just transform this particular city and use it for good. That's all going to take place in Antioch. But first, let's just read these final verses, or these first few verses of chapter 12. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. This is all still in Jerusalem, by the way. It's going to be the last thing of Peter. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he would bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So it mentions in verse 1, Herod. Once more, one of the Herods rears his head, and it's never good when the Herods pop up in Scripture. Now the name Herod was a family name, but it also sort of became synonymous with uh, a title as well, like a, mili- a um, political title as well. This particular Herod is who is known as Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that ruled during the time of Christ or Jesus' birth, and he is the one who ordered that all the baby boys of Bethlehem be killed. That's Herod the Great. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. There's another Herod, Herod Antipas. That was actually Herod Agrippa's uncle. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. He's the one that was involved in the trial of Jesus and bring him in, I'll talk to him, send him over to here. That was that Herod Antipas. Well, here now, though, we are looking at Herod Agrippa I, a Roman, and all that goes with being a Roman. But, interesting, he was fond of Judaism, and he was fond of the Jewish faith, and he was fond of uh, the God of Judaism, and particularly the practices of Judaism, Judaism. And so he kept to, and he sought to strictly keep the law, not necessarily a bad thing, and the various Jewish observances as well. So he's a Roman, but he's adopted a lot of the Jewish practices. So the Jewish people, okay, you're all right, you know, you're pretty good, I guess, kind of thing. But it was a very tenuous relationship between Agrippa and the Jews, particularly the powerful Jews of Jerusalem. And the relationship was something like this. As long as you do everything I want you to do and the way we want you to do it, this is how the Jews looked at Herod. As long as you do everything we want and we like what you're doing, then we're going to like you. But if you decide to go a different direction, we're not going to like you anymore. All right? And so Herod Agrippa, ruler of the world in a sense, particularly of that portion of the world, and yet he was so sort of weak individually that he kept trying to do things that would please the Jews. How sad. You're the most powerful person in this town, and you're worried about what everybody thinks of you, and you keep sort of bending yourself to meet their desires for you. Come on, man, grow up. Be an adult. And yet, that's how Herod lived. And we have an example of it in this particular passage here. Notice in verse 1, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on those belonging to the church. Go down to verse 3 for a second. It says, And so he killed the brother of, of John, James, the brother of John, with the sword. Notice, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
So we're not told specifically why he decided to lay violent hands on the church, but we, are, we do see why he decided to go further with it and arrest Peter as well. It's not because Peter was a bad guy or Peter was leading people astray or Peter was doing this. It's because he saw that it pleased the Jews, and that's what he lived for. He lived to please other people. It's really sad. His violence, though, before we get to Peter, it began with James. Look at verse 2. It says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, prior to this, the persecution against the church, and we've seen examples of it. Stephen was killed uh, and, and others we saw. Prior to this, the persecution came from the Jewish authorities. Now, here with this Herod, the persecution is going to come at the hands of the Roman authorities. Now, ultimately, regardless of where it emanated from, we know that it came from the pit of hell. And we know that Satan was working overtime to try and destroy the church there in Jerusalem. And so he inspires first the Jewish authorities, then he inspires uh, Herod, uh, the Herod himself, hoping to hinder the advancement of the church. Of course, Jesus said that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. But Satan's giving it a shot anyway, and he's pouring out his, uh, his wrath here against the church and through Herod. And so Herod kills James. Notice it says he kills him with the sword. That's maybe a polite way of saying that he had James beheaded. And so here is James giving his life for the faith, as Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, as no doubt others did, as we read in Acts chapter 8, as the wrath was poured out on the church. James here, we might say, as Jesus said, was baptized with the baptism of Jesus. Maybe you recall the account in the Gospels, not a shining day for James. But James and his brother John, they're talking, they come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus if when he comes into his kingdom, when he gets to sit on his throne, if James could sit on one side, his left side, and John could sit on their right side. And, and by that, what they meant was, can we be your right and left-hand man? Can we be your number two and two and a half there in the kingdom? Can we have the authority and power that comes with that particular position? Now, if you remember the passage, this is Mark chapter 10. They, their words, because I know we don't have screen, it says, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand when you come into your glory. Now, if you remember that passage, the rest of the disciples are shocked and angered at James and John that they would ask such a question. And I suspect what they're really mad at is that James and John asked the question before they themselves could ask the question because then they get into this debate about who's the greatest and who should be in those particular seats. Now Jesus' response is both gracious to James and John and also predictive in nature. He says this, this is uh, Mark chapter 10, 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, Jesus knew that his pathway to glory ran through the cross, ran through, if you will, his own martyrdom, his own sacrifice. And now these people want to go to where Jesus is going. They want to be seated on his left and his right. 
Well, the only way they're going to get there is through martyrdom, essentially. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you undergo the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And their response indicates they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Because we know Jesus is saying, can you be killed like I'm going to be killed? And their response is, yeah, you bet. Absolutely, sure. No thought whatsoever. Even if they were ready, my voice is really high today. I don't know what's going on here. I'm excited. Uh, even if they were ready to die for Jesus, any of us that were put in that situation would pull back for a moment and just, I sure hope I can be ready. That kind of an answer. Not, yeah, you bet. No big deal. They don't understand where Jesus is going here. Jesus says to them, do you really know what it is that you are asking? And they say, yeah, we can, we're able. Clearly they don't understand it. But Jesus here, he knows all things, including the fact that they don't really understand. And so he says this to them. This is uh, verse 39. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. This martyrdom that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 12 is the fulfillment of that promise of James, uh, to James by Jesus. In his death, to use Jesus' words, James was baptized with his master's baptism. Now what's interesting, Jesus said that to James and to John, both standing there in front of him. And what's interesting to note is that John similarly experienced the baptism of Jesus, but rather than it being in his death and in his martyrdom, like James, John fulfilled it by a lifetime of devoted ministry and service to the Lord. John, they tried to put to death many times, actually, we know historically, and he never died. For whatever reason, this thing should have killed him or that thing should have killed him, didn't kill him. They tried to boil him alive in oil and he didn't die from it. And he was eventually exiled to the island of Patmos all by himself on this island somewhere. That should have killed him and it didn't kill him. And he received the revelation, the book of revelation that we have here. And so James is cut, his life is cut short in the prime of his life. And John lives another 50 years after this. And you look at that and you're like, well, why is that? Why would God take James or allow James to be killed and let John live out his particular day? And we begin to ask questions like, you know, God, why? Why here but not there? What's going on here? And I'm going to come back to that as we continue to move through here because we see it again in the next chapter, the why questions. Why does God do what he does? We'll look at that in a few minutes here. But continuing in our passage, so Herod killed James, the brother of John. He saw that it pleased the Jews. He saw that his polling numbers were skyrocketing with the Jews uh, when he killed James. And so he has Peter arrested also, only adding to the depths of the depravity of Herod Agrippa, that he would have somebody killed to increase his poll numbers. My gosh, what's the matter with you? And yet... That's Herod Agrippa. He persecutes the church out of purely political motives. We read earlier about uh, Rabbi Saul, who persecuted the church. He went all over trying to find Christians and make them deny the faith uh, or suffer the consequences. But at least in that instance, 
he sincerely believed that he was doing the work of God. His motivation was, these people are defiling the Jewish faith. I have to stop them for God's honor. For Herod, it was for polling numbers. How terrible. Verse 4 goes on. Now, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he would bring him out to the, pe to the people. So Peter is thrown in a Jerusalem prison there in the center of town. Notice it says Herod is careful about he moves, how he moves forward because, again, it says that it is during the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people come into the city during the Passover, and who knows, these religious fanatics, how they're going to respond one way or the other. When they all go home, and I just work with the Jews that live here, and you know, they, we know how to work with one another, that's when I'll take care of Peter. And so he locked Peter away. Passover is going to last a week. I don't know what day he locks him away, but six, five, six, seven days or so, Peter is there in prison. And notice how he holds him. Verse 4 says, he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers that would guard him. A Roman squad was comprised of four men. Four squads, therefore, total 16 men almost certainly on rotating shifts, four come in at a time, and they're going to guard Peter. One soldier, we'll learn a few minutes, handcuffed to each of Peter's wrists. The other two soldiers right outside the prison door there in the hallway. The, the door probably locked, almost certainly locked. This seems like quite a set of precautions against Peter. In fact, normally it was considered enough just to handcuff a prisoner to one soldier. Here they have four on a rotating shifts for Peter. So notice what I think Luke is trying to do here. Luke's the author of the book of Acts. Notice what he's trying to do here. He tells us that Peter has been imprisoned. That's a big deal, right? If you were imprisoned for your faith, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. What is happening to my friend? What's happening to me? Then he tells us, that he's shackled in that prison, not to one soldier, but to two, on each of his two sides, one on his right and one on his left. He tells us additionally, there are two guards stationed outside of the cell of the gate to provide further security against any kind of escape, any kind of uh, break this guy out of prison, anything like that. And then on top of that, that those groups of four rotate themselves so they're always fresh, always on their guard, always alert. And then we add to that the account that just days earlier or so, James had been executed. And I think what Luke is trying to do here is he's trying to paint the picture for us of just how dire the circumstances are for Peter. Peter's going to die. There's no hope for Peter here. Verse 5, it says, Peter was kept in prison. But notice it says, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter was locked away, doors shut, multiple doors no doubt, shackled to soldiers, but that could not stop the church from praying. And so when every other gate was shut, every other gate was locked, there was still the open door to heaven. And access to heaven through prayer remained wide open for the church. Notice what it says in verse 5 there, earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Now, I, I have to wonder, 
just because I know my tendencies and our tendencies, I have to wonder if circumstances were a little less dire, if the disciples would have been a little less earnest in their prayers. But with no human possibility of escape or rescue, all that the church could do is pray. Now, I know in my head that prayer should not be our last resort. But I also know that often we do not pray until it is our last resort. And so the disciples, they find themselves in that circumstance. And so as it says, they cry out to God earnestly in prayer on behalf of Peter. Earnest prayer, it said, was made to God for Peter. Some of your versions might say it a little differently. It might say constant prayer. The idea that is attempting to be communicated is this idea of fervency. This is all we're about right now, praying for Peter's deliverance. The word literally, it's, a, it's not really a, a word typically meant to describe praying. The word typically means someone stretching out all they can for something. Somebody for reaching for something. So to use a different analogy, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the person, uh, what I'm thinking of is the Brady Bunch. You guys remember that episode where they went out west and they got locked up in that little, the clink out there? You remember? It was a great episode. And the keys, they were lying right outside the gate, outside of the prison cell. And, you know, Bobby is reaching with all he has for the keys and his little fingers are trying to grab the ring and, and all this kind of stuff. That, that's what it means. All right, that's the picture. Reaching with all you have to be able to get a hold of something. What these guys are doing is they're stretching as far as they possibly can stretch to reach heaven. That God might hear their prayers and that he might deliver their friend, their leader, their brother, Peter. Circumstances were at their most dire and they needed God to move. Now notice also this about their prayer. It says, earnest prayer was made to God. Now, duh, right? You might be thinking that. It seems like an obvious point, but I think often we pray without a real sense that we are coming into the very presence of God. The one who actually can do something about this particular circumstance. And perhaps this is the reason why we are sometimes not as fervent in our praying to God, thinking, well, what kind of an impact is this really going to have anyway? Or God, if there's anything you could do, that's what he's thinking in heaven. If there's anything I can do, why don't you come back when you're serious about praying? All right, so sometimes we're not as fervent in prayer because we don't really realize I'm coming into his presence. Maybe that's even the reason why we're not praying at all. But these believers, they come before God, they make their request known to God. They, something to this effect, Lord, please, preserve Peter's life. Get him out of this hopeless circumstance. God, you're the only one who can. And fervently, they cry out, they stretch with all their uh, might to reach heaven. And then thirdly, notice this, they do so as a body of believers. Now, an email could have gone out so to speak. Hey guys, please be in prayer. And people could have prayed at home and they could have taken a moment, but they recognize there's the, the value of coming together with other believers and praying. 
Luke tells us that they gathered as the church to pray. They could have prayed on their own, but they come together to pray as one body of believers united in heart and mind in prayer, in this case on behalf of their beloved brother, Peter. There is great value in gathering together with others to pray. And I think more so than when you're by yourself praying. When we gather together with others to pray, it lifts our spirits. We're encouraged even by hearing other people pray as we pray. It increases our faith. As that brother or that sister in faith prays that prayer, it has the effect of strengthening our faith as well. It unites our hearts and our minds with those brothers and sisters. And it brings us into one accord for God's will to be done. And so we can pray by ourselves, and we should. We're supposed to have those times by ourselves. But we are also called to come together as brothers and sisters in prayer. And I encourage you, if gathering with others to pray is not a regular part of your Christian practice, you want to make it a part of your practice. Find a group of people. Come together. Be praying with that group of people. Join for the regular prayer meetings that we have. Be praying with one another. Make it a regular practice. Now, this is my final point on this topic of prayer, which is why do we need to pray? Again, one of those why questions. Why do we need to pray? And, and here's, here, this is my thinking. And maybe you think similarly. If God is sovereign, isn't he going to do what he's going to do whether I pray or not? Is what I sometimes struggle with. If he's going to do what he's going to do, why, why should I? Lord, you know what to do. Just do it. A slightly different argument that leads to the same result, prayerlessness, is, well, if God is omniscient, he already knows, and so why do I need to tell him in prayer? Why waste my time praying? Now, those are reasonable questions. I mean, they, they make sense logically. And the answer is probably not one that's going to convince you, to be honest with you. Because it is true that God is sovereign, and thus his will will be done. And it is true that God is omniscient, and he knows all things. But the reality is, in his word, he calls us to pray. And the testimony of scripture is that the things that God does, he does through our prayers. Now, in, further on in the New Testament, in the book of James, different James from the one that was just executed. This is the James, the brother of the Lord, who wrote that particular epistle. James said this. He said, you have not because you ask not. Well, that very clearly teaches that the Lord works in response to our prayers. Does he have to? No. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Has he chosen to work in response to our prayers? Yes. That's the testimony of Scripture. And so to restate James's words slightly, we do not have something because we have not asked for that something. And if that's true, then the converse is also true. We do have a particular thing because we have asked for that particular thing. Now, of course... That thing needs to be according to God's will. That's what James says in the very next verse. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly 
to spend it on your own evil desires. And so we have to ask according to God's will, but their point, especially for our purposes this morning, is the importance of the value of prayer or and the value of prayer, especially when circumstances seem hopeless, hopeless and beyond remedy as this one with Peter certainly appears to be. And so continuing, beginning, look at verse six. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. And what was the church doing? They were praying. This next little account is just too good to rush through. And so we're going to stop actually there with Peter sleeping on the night he's to be executed. The next morning he's going to be executed. That's crazy. And the church crying out to God, stretching like Bobby Brady with all that they can to reach God that he might deliver 